It's time debit card users are also included in the cashback fun. Now everyone can get cashback on everyday purchases with Discover Cashback Debit. That includes no fees, period. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey, the podcast where we cover all the pop culture we love to hate, from the classic reality TV moments of the past and present to the latest Daily Mail headlines and everything in between. We'll dive into all the infamous and notorious messes you can't stop watching. I'm looking at you, Jax Taylor. I'm your host, Ryan Bailey. John Tesh in the Entertainment Night Studios, we have the exclusive from the man who wrote the book on DNA and murder. You'll hear what he has to say about the O.J. Simpson case. O.J. will be acquitted and will probably be Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade in 1995. What is all this O.J. defense costing? I'm Mary Hart. We'll count down the figures and show you how much juice is being squeezed. Plus, Harrison Ford is behind the wheel and driving his car like he stole it. Back up, back up! Stand by for Entertainment Tonight for Thursday, July 28th, 1994. You guys, welcome to So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey. This is Ryan Bailey, and what you just heard is a clue. I mean, it is what you're going to hear today. Um, I got to interview one of my childhood heroes. His name is John Tesh. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Tesh, and I did this interview a couple of months ago, and it was, I read his book, I I was just so excited, and the man was amazing. First off, one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard in my life. The the guy has a voice of just an, just a a deep, deep based angel voice. Like, it's just beautiful. You're going to love his voice. This is just Interview-wise, you're just going to love listening to him, but he says so many amazing things in this interview. He did not disappoint, but I just want to explain a little bit 
Like, I waited a couple months to release this because I was trying to think of the perfect time to release this because we talk a lot about pop culture on reality shows, but I know you guys as an audience have, have kind of taken turns with me, whether it be uh, we've, we've talked about some serious issues this year, you've allowed me to kind of dig deeper into social media and, and just different things that I'm really proud of. Now, Sandra, who has been uh, booking the show and just doing amazing, she reached out to them and they they accepted the uh, the interview and it 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 just was so I, I just want to explain a little bit. I was a, a small boy in Olathe, Kansas, where I grew up. And every night at uh, I believe it was it was six pm or seven pm, I would sit in uh, front of my parents' TV and I would watch entertainment tonight every night. And it was my connection to Hollywood. Remember, this is before the internet. This is before anything. But for that half hour, I was transported to TV and film and musicians and just the glamour of it all, of Hollywood. And I always dreamed of someday being in Hollywood. And I dreamed of being somebody like John Tesh. I, like, I mean, he's just, he was the host. He was, I'm John Tesh. And this is, is entertainment tonight. That's a horrible John Tesh, you guys. But I... The, the important part of that is that it, it made me a dreamer, you know, it, it gave me something to shoot for. And, and one day, believe it or not, I did move to Los Angeles. So I'm blaming John Tesh for my moving to Los Angeles. No, but like I used to watch this dude every night and I just thought, how cool, what a cool job. He gets to talk to, to uh, actors and musicians and, and celebrities and then... The dude goes on to have this brilliant music career um, that we talk about. And then he does all of these things with his belief and his faith. This man has had one of the most fascinating lives, uh, which we talk about. His book, Relentless, is out now. And I read it cover to cover in two days. I just, and you guys know, not a, I'm, I like to say I'm a huge fan of reading, but the, 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 the COVID thing has like took away my attention span but I was into this. He has such an amazing life story. But what you're going to hear today is just me completely geeking out. But I just want you to know that this entire time that he did this interview with me, I was just sitting there just smiling. I was just smiling. I, I get a little teary even talking about it now because it's a uh, you know, like, it's just, this is what I get to do now is I get to talk to like reality stars and I get to talk and who knows what 2022 is going to have, you know, because of you guys, you guys have allowed me to do these things. You guys have allowed me to get with iHeartRadio and, and, and things like that. And I just thought, what a better way to end the year in terms of my last interview of the year to make it one of my heroes, to make it the person or one of the people that, that made me strive to do what I'm doing today. And in his book, he talks about all of the, the the hard times and the lean years. And even Entertainment Tonight, they talk about his audition for it. And he didn't do good at first. And and he learned to do uh, better and better. And I just, he's one of my favorite hosts. Um, I think what that, that kind of job that he did during that time period is such a delicate, delicate um, balance. 
It's hysterical, you guys. Just so you know, I'm recording in the guest bedroom at my parents' place, and my mom just walked in while I was literally tearing up talking about John Tesh. She wanted to me to, she wanted to ask something about her new Apple Watch she got for Christmas. So, uh, I I love it. Even when I'm doing adult things, I'm always just a child. I'm hey guys, I'm the child I was back in Kansas watching Entertainment Tonight in the in the '80s and the '90s. Um, okay, so. I just want to give you a little backstory, uh, not backstory, but just a little bit of John Tesh's accomplishments, which I say in the intro as well, but I just want to butter you up. This is like somebody I really respect. So this guy has six music Emmys, two Grammy nominations, three gold records, seven public television specials, which are amazing stories. Uh, the first one, which we talk about big swings on this podcast. Dave Holmes came on and we talk about making those big swings in life. This dude has made some big swings and they paid off. Um, eight million records sold. Yeah, eight million records sold. Uh, he's had a three-decade career. Um, he also has a family. His wife, Connie Selica, is an amazing actress uh, in her own right. She's awesome. Uh, and and his faith, he's... He's just, I really recommend you go to his website. I really recommend you read his book. I'm going to put the links to that in the show notes. Uh, but this interview goes everywhere. We talk about entertainment tonight. We talk about what he's doing now. We talk about his music. We talk about his faith. We uh, This man battled cancer in uh, in the last decade, and and uh, he he's a fighter. I cannot say enough good things about this guy. And I, I, just, I just thought this would be a perfect way to end the year as kind of a little hope and a wish for me to make 2022 even better and to emulate people like John Tesh. Uh, You know, I always kind of think like, wow, he had entertainment tonight. That's the only thing you ever need. That really, it made such an impact on me. And then I read this guy's, I read this man's book and he had done everything. Like I knew he had music. I saw him on Conan, but then to read all of these little behind the scenes stories and the passion in which he lives his life and consistently learning every day, it just blows me away. You know, he's definitely somebody I wanted to emulate as a child and he's somebody I want to emulate now. And this is just a really, I feel positive, good interview. We don't really talk about reality shows. That's the thing. But I think, I think you like me. I think you do. I know you do. I know you trust me to take you into different places and I know you're going to love him. So this is just a really great conversation. I think it's a really good interview. And um, and that's it, you guys. We're almost out of 2021. And we're going to make, like I said all week, we're going to make 2022 the best. And we're closing this week out just on a high note. And this is one of my favorite experiences of the year, being able to talk to one of my heroes, one of the people, like I said, that I'm doing what I'm doing because... I was a small boy watching him do what he did. Um, And then remember, on Thursday, I'm going to do a little end-of-the-year wrap-up, just me and you, you guys, and then uh, we're going to celebrate a new year, and then I'll be back with new episodes next week. I just released a two-hour episode on my Patreon uh, with me and Meditza Lopez. We um, talk a lot about the holidays, and then uh, we do a 40-minute wrap-up of Real Housewives of Miami. So that's over there on the Patreon, and I interview my dad tomorrow, so that should be interesting. That'll be on the Patreon as well. So you guys... I love you. Um, I can't say that enough. And here he is, this amazing man, my hero, John Tesh. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to iHeartRadio. So bad, it's good. But today's guest is going to make it so good, it's great. Now, I've talked about this gentleman before on this show. Uh, we take inspiration in our life from so many things. And I grew up in a, a, a town called Olathe, Kansas. And when I was a kid, I would watch Entertainment Tonight religiously. I loved pop culture, movies, TV, music so much. And this gentleman hosted that show for 10 years. And I would sit there religiously in front of the TV. And it's part of the reason that I knew that there was a place called Los Angeles, that there was a place called Hollywood. And he really, truly was a hero of mine. He did everything that I wanted to do. He looked so cool in a suit. He was talking to Mary Hart. He, he got to talk about celebrities and movie stars. But then it turns out there is so much more to this man than what I saw as a kid. Um, and we reached out to, to Mr. Uh, our next guest and we reached out to him and he so graciously accepted. And then I got to read his book, you guys. I recommend this highly. His book is called Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. But I'm not done there yet. Not done yet. Not only is he a host, he is a composer. You might have uh, uh, listened to his music. You might have seen it on PBS. He has entertained millions upon millions of people. He is not only a father, a husband. He is a man of faith. He is a positive man. He. I read this book at the right time because sometimes you're trudging through life and you just kind of don't know what the next step is. And this book, it hits you with so many positive messages. He has his uh, own battle with cancer that he got through. His. Uh, I don't. I, let's just get started. We got to start talking. I'm too excited. John Tesh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my honor to be on the show. And uh, it's so funny because uh, people now, when they if they remember me, it's like, oh, man, when I was like three years old, I used to watch you on Entertainment Tonight. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's getting crazy. Um, but we were we just finished this big project. It was a it was a live video project. And I was going through the video and and um, and Connie said to me, she goes, oh, is that a song that you played on Avalon, which was a PBS special? And so I said, yeah, it's on YouTube. Let's watch it. So we watched like one or two songs. And she goes, oh, my gosh, you were a different person. And I said, yeah. And I said, what do you mean? She goes. You had so much more energy. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so I've I've already had like six or seven cups of coffee today. So I'm ready for you. I'm I'm, oh. I'm the I'm the guy with so much more energy right now. But my gosh, I I mean I you heard me trip over that intro. I have been I woke up at six a.m. today, you guys. And if you listen to the show, you know that is unheard of for me. But I needed to go through everything, John Teshigan, because this book you wrote it in it came out in 2020, but it is just amazing. I mean, it, you kind of pepper everything through. You start off with your your battle with cancer and you end it with that, but then there is so much of your life in between. Is it shocking to you looking back or even writing this book to actually go through how many things that you have been a part of in this life so far? Yeah, Ryan. I mean, I, I have to tell you that when the guys at HarperCollins came to me and 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 because they had heard about uh, my first bout with cancer and, and about the success and they wanted me to write about it, and they and they knew that, you know, you and I both have very busy lives. And they said, um, you know, would you like us to hire a ghostwriter? I said, ah, that sounds great. You know, I, how does that work? <laughs> and they said, well, uh, they'll they, uh, they'll interview you and then transcribe it. And then they'll and then they can write a little bit of it. And then you can say, say, oh, this is not my own work. So we tried this for about a month. And then I, I realized it was like it was almost like a, a like a message from the Holy Spirit where it was like you need to do this yourself. And they had planned for the book to be released in six months, and and it took me Ryan two and a half years to do this. And and it, and it was really meant to be that way because in that two and a half year period, 
I went through yet another battle with cancer. And, 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 and so I was like living uh, uh, what I was writing about. And I, and I listen, you don't have to write a book, anybody who's listening, but it's, I, I do really recommend, it was forced journaling for me, which I'd never done. And so, yes, to answer your question, uh, and I, it's it really hard for me to land the plane after any question, but here I'm going to land it. <laughs> Please. Yeah, go. This so, is your uh, plane. This is your plane. <laughs> Keep it up in the air. So uh, I'll tell you more stories about the plane thing later. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the, um, uh, I realized that I had gone through, it, I looked back on my life and it was like, wow, I had no idea. What was I thinking when I made that decision? Or what was I thinking when I made this decision? And it really forces you to go back and, and have a look. And all of a sudden you realize, I, I have so much to be grateful for, you know? And, and so it was a great cathartic experience for me. Yeah. I mean, and you speak of Connie, which is, who is your wife, Connie Selica. And that was another, when I was a little kid, greatest American hero. I mean, I remember like, I mean, just an amazing lady. And you talk about her so much in the book as well, because you guys have face all of these battles together and even your faith. Uh, that was something when you were first, by the way, Mr. John Tesh uh, was relentless with, with Miss Elica. She, you, you literally try to call her like two times a day to get her to go back on a date with you. Isn't that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, there's some, and the one thing I like to make, <laughs> I like to make clear is that I, uh, the, I titrated, it was almost like we we uh, did the book and and my and kind of helped me a lot with editing it, but uh, we did the book uh, like like this is us, right? So it was like it was there was a there was an episode of the of the cancer battle and you're in it and I and I and I fought with the editor um, at, at Harper because I said they said you're you're running around with your tenses, you got to stay in one tense. And I said no, I want people because I'm a voracious reader of of like Stephen King and stuff like that, oh, nice. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I I wanted people to be in the moment. So I wrote it in real time and then I would pop out and then and then look back at it and I sort of titrated that. So it wasn't one big, long story about cancer. It was a story about hopefully about about uh, uh, re relentlessness. But it was I forgot what your question was. Would you? Would you oh, no, I was oh, just saying that. that, that oh, that, the Connie thing. Yeah, the Connie yeah. thing. No, no. So uh, in the book is this story about I, I actually, as you know, I panicked and and I was a huge fan of hers from from Greatest American Hero. I, I would, you know, I, I would, you know, we all fell in love with her, right? And so all of a sudden she shows up in this gym. This is the short version of it. Shows up in this gym that I'm in at the same time in a hotel. We're, we're working on different projects, and I'm pretending I don't see her. And then uh, you know, I'm trying to be super cool. And as I'm walking out, she says, "Oh, John Tesh, is that is that you?" And I go, oh, Connie Silica, I didn't see you there. And she goes, with, with, in her Bronx accent, well, we're the only two people on the in, in the gym, you know. And so uh, I did. I asked her out right then, and then I panicked and I and I bolted. I ghosted the date. And so then, when I realized what I had done, the journey of of doing the research and, and bombing her answering machine and calling from Wimbledon and all the rest of that stuff. It's a pretty hilarious story. Well, you guys, Entertainment Tonight has a research or had a research department. I'm sure they still do. But he actually went in and started like uh, kind of researching Connie Selica to kind of, uh, you know, up his game. But it, it was uh, a very hysterical story. And also, but it, it, it's an interesting story because it shows uh, that once you set your mind to something, you go for it. And it seems like that is a recurring theme throughout your life. Has it, was it always like that? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it really started in earnest with that college story of me being thrown, thrown out of college. But, but first of all, you know, I was born in 1952 and on Long Island, my whole family, the all family tree, they were all 
uh, born in North, rural North Carolina. But my dad, who was uh, the underwear king of Haynes, <laughs> he, he got transferred to New York City. And he was a you know, World War II veteran, was a chief petty officer in, in the Battle of Okinawa. And so here we are in Long Island, and I am this really skinny, scrawny kid. Uh, you know, my dad was a tough guy, smoking Kent cigarettes, and always always had a whiskey in his left hand. You know, my 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 mom was uh, she was a, a a retired surgical nurse and tennis champion, and uh, she you know she always deferred to him. You know, that was really the way it was back back there, especially in the in in the suburbs. And so I never really knew what the heck was going on with my parents, and they didn't know what the heck was going on with me. I had two older sisters; they were exhausted from that. Uh, you know, raising kids in the fifties and sixties, and so they didn't even know where my school was. I, I, God bless them. But they, 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 the rule was go to school. And then when the streetlights are on at night, come back. Cause that's when your dinner is going to be. And if you don't show up for dinner, you don't get any dinner. You know, I was like, wow. You know, <laughs> and, and there, I mean, there really was, there was like three, three stations on television. So there was, we had this great basement that my dad had finished. And in that basement was a, a, a reel to reel tape recorder. There was like a, an eight millimeter uh, a, a film camera. Uh, there was a bunch of, you know, stuff down there, you know, like a record player and everything. And so that's where I went after school and, and because I was, I'm six foot six and 220 now. And I was six foot six in junior high school and 152. Oh so I couldn't go out for the football team. I would, they, I could, they couldn't insure me. So I played the other sport. I played soccer, you know, <laughs> but I, was a, I was a, I was a high jumper because I had less wound resistance. Um, <laughs> But that was real. That nobody really paid any attention to me in junior high school. High school. So my only, my only, uh, only thing I could do was just I played instruments and I and I made stuff. And so my mom gave me piano lessons. And I played in the marching band because if you can't go to, if you're not on the football team, you're in the marching band because you're and you're wearing spats. And so no one's really going to talk to you after you're wearing spats. <laughs> but then when I got to college, my dad sent me to the to study, you know, underwear making, textile chemistry. Of he said I would, I would probably, you know, and he, you know, that's what these guys said back then. The parents said, oh, you know, oh, you gotta, gotta have something to fall back on, right? <laughs> the underwear uh, industry, you, yeah. You can't do music. You can't have something to fall back on. What's your plan B? And so about about three years into that, I just panicked and said I got to do something else. And so I changed my major without telling my parents, and one of my professors would not sign my drop ad card. And I was desperate, and I may have had a beer, and I uh, I signed his name. I forged his name on the drop ad card. And when I tell that story <laughs> on stage, you can just hear everybody go, <gasps> right? <laughs> and sure enough, that was the guy that checked. And I got thrown out of school, and then my dad threw me out of the house, and I was in a pup tent uh, in a park in North Carolina at 19 years old, uh, 20 years old, with no future ahead of me. And so, yes, that's when I learned <laughs> that I had to come up with some strategies to pull myself out of stuff that I had, uh, that I had shot my foot with. I mean, so, and, and what, I mean, what leads you, because, you know, we know that you would, uh, I think you were working in radio for a, a second and then you were actually, what brought you to, to TV, to news? What, what, I mean, what was that from going to a pup tent to starting on that career path when you weren't doing that during high school? Was that even a dream of yours? Um, no, I mean, I, I had developed a great question. I had developed Ryan, some skills uh, just, you know, pretending to be, you know, back in the day, you didn't watch a lot of, I, I mean, maybe, maybe a few, you watched Ed Sullivan and the, the Dick Van Dyke show, you know, stuff like that on, on TV, but not, we didn't really watch all that much TV, maybe million dollar movie where you saw Godzilla, you know, on the weekends, 
But so there, you, had, you had a lot of time on your hands. And so you listen to the radio. And in back in back in those days, the, the radio personalities were, I mean, as big as anybody who's on any of the big TV programs, you know. And so you would listen to Cousin Brucie or Dan Ingram or <laughs> Murray the K, right? And and these were your friends. And so that's what I did. I spent a lot of time listening to the radio uh, in the basement and then emulating those guys. I don't know why. And I think it was because I, I was the third child in, in the family. And there was, uh, you know, 11 years difference between me and my sisters. And the, just the parents, there was no helicopter parenting back then. And so I would I would just pretend I was announcing on the radio. And then for Christmas, my uncle got me. Uh, a Mr. Microphone <laughs> and and also uh, a, I don't know if you remember, you're not old enough to remember Heath Kits. Do you remember Heath Kits? I don't know. So a Heath Kit, you got that at Corvettes or you could get it at Sears or you could send away for it. And it was, you could build your own radio station. And I mean, they, they gave you the, there are people listening to this. They will remember <laughs> this. You, they give you the diodes and it is the plastic knobs and everything and the microphone and, and you can, once you assemble this thing, it has enough power that you can broadcast into your dad's car. And, and, and if you tune, if you, there are people going, yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> there are like, if you tune between, there, there isn't any space between radio stations now, but back in the day, if you tune between WABC and WMCA or something like that, there would just be, Right. Well, that was the channel for the John Tesh radio show. So I was like, so I'm broadcasting into that thing. And then I had my friend, Donnie Holman. He, I give him the microphone that I'd sit in the car and listen to it, you know? And so we were always building stuff like that. And so when I was at North Carolina state in the textile chemistry program, studying quantitative analysis and Avogadro's number, which is 6.02 times 10 to the minus 23rd. Okay. I, okay. When I was studying that stuff, which I've never used again in Latin, right? <laughs> Uh, I was like, oh gosh, I have to do. I, I would always be like in the in the radio lab. They had a radio lab, and I took television radio one hundred and one. When I took that television radio one hundred and one course, I don't know when you got bit by the bug, but that was it for me. And that's when I wanted to change my major. So when I got thrown out of school and I was in the pup tent uh, working construction at CC Mangum Construction in Raleigh, uh, I realized that I, I was the only way to want because here I am. I'm kicked out of school. I, I have fraternity brothers. I have friends. I have a girlfriend. And here I am in a pup tent in a park right next to the university. And nobody would talk to me. My girlfriend broke up with me. I mean, it was just, I was just a total embarrassment. I was a pariah. I was an embarrassment. I was an outcast. And, and the university wasn't letting me even, even petition getting back in because I, quote unquote, broken the honor code by forging a professor's signature. So I just went for, I just said, well, I'm going to get a job in radio. So I went from radio station to radio station, WKIX, WRAL, and they were all like, oh, you don't have any experience. You need to get some experience. And so long story short, I had a friend who had a key to WKNC, which was the campus radio station at, at NC State. And he let me in at midnight one night. And I, I, I had in front of me, I had a, a reel-to-reel tape recorder, a microphone. They had an old beat-up upright piano and a typewriter. And I made a fake radio broadcast, Ryan. I sat in there and I made an hour-long broadcast pretending to be all the different people. And so I had the typewriter. I was like, ta -ta 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 -ta, like the teletype, right? Yeah. And I would play, you know, like the NBC, the boom, boom, boom. And then I was like, this is John Tesh, WKIX 2020 News. Today, uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger said there's a possibility of peace in the Middle East. We switch you live now to Maurice Gindy and Kyle. This is Maurice Gindy and Kyle. Today, Dr. Henry Kissinger had this to say about the possibility of peace in the Middle East. I think there is a possibility of peace in the Middle East. 
back to you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Kissinger. Back to you in the studio, John. And then I beat my chest and did the, the traffic report. <laughs> traffic is reasonably heavy on the Cross France Expressway, you know. <laughs> and so I made this real to real tape. And I made copies that I took around to stations and I, you know, no, I didn't hear from anybody except for a guy named Scott White at WKIX. He called me on the payphone that was next to my tent uh, in Umstead Park in Raleigh. And he said, is this John Tash? And I said, yeah. He said, did, did you, you can hear laughing in the background, did you make all these noises and everything on there? And I said, on the tape, I said, yes. He said, I need to meet you. And so I went in there and I talked to him and he said, yeah, you seem like a real go-getter. That was a real word back then, you know, go-getter. And uh, he said, you can have a job, uh, you know, racing the tapes on Sundays if you want. And so I did. And you know what happens? Somebody comes in late or they quit or they one anchorman came in drunk, you know, they fired him. And you're just there. You're in the place and you're like in the room where it happens. And it's like, all right, Tesh, you're on. Try something, you know. And so that's how I got my first radio job. And I still stay in touch with this guy, Scott White. He was sitting next to me when I was inducted into Radio Hall of Fame a few, a few years back. But it was just it was well, you ended up reading news for Rick Dees at that station, didn't you? Yeah, I was the newsman for Rick Dees for a little while. Yeah, so I still stay in touch with him, too. And then, you know, you send out a demo tape to television. and right, Yeah, so within a, in 36 months, Ryan, I went from Raleigh to Orlando, Florida, where Disney was just starting, and then to Nashville. And in Nashville was where I really learned how to be a reporter in 1974, that was, uh, I was the co-anchor man with a guy named Dan Miller in Nashville. I did some investigative reporting. And then Pat Sajak was the weather guy. And Hugh, ha Hugh Hauser actually was there too, wasn't he? Yeah, Hugh, I can tell you a funny Hugh Hauser story if you have the time. But yeah. anyway, uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey was a reporter at the competition, the Channel 5, at 19 years old. And so Oprah and I were competing reporters back there in, 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 in there and became good friends through, through the years, which has been reported on as well. Yes, but, uh, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so uh, yeah, Huel, this guy named Huel Hauser, if anybody knows who he is, he, he became very popular on PBS and, uh, and he did this report in, in, you know, Los Angeles, these great pieces for, for, yeah. for public television. But he was the most popular person out there. We did an hour-long TV show in Nashville. He was the most popular guy in the air. Which, And I was a hard news reporter by then. I really was like, you know, give me three minutes and I'll bring down the, the fire chief, you know, or whatever. You know, they put me in, coach. And so he, will, he will come in and he'd go, and he had this, Hi, this is Huel Hauser, and uh, I'm in a very special per place at a very special time today. I'm in uh, I'm in Chattanooga, you know, and and people people loved him. I mean, it was amazing when when he came on, the ratings just blew up. So I remember one day I had this I had this investigative report on the fire codes in Nashville, and but 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 Huel had a piece that was about a pig that rode on top of a car. And so uh, the, the, the news director said, okay, John, you got three minutes. You, know, you have the pre-show meeting and you'll, I'll give you four and a half minutes for your pig story. Four and a half minutes. I can't tell you. You got to tell in four and a half minutes. So he comes in, you know, we're at a live news broadcast. He comes in and he turns in a piece. It's six and a half minutes long about a pig on top of a car. And, and my piece got booted and it got booted until the next day. And I ended up getting scooped or anything, but it didn't matter because Huel was this force you know, and, and everybody just loved him. Uh, we got along better 
after he left and after I left, we reconnected <laughs> in Los Angeles. But I was like, oh, God, his shoe's not on the show today. Is he please? He's not on the show. <laughs> um, I mean, you even, I mean, in the book, you actually tried, you were one of, I mean, like the 44 caliber killer, even like you were the first person on the scene that interviewed a survivor. I mean, like you, you really, I mean, entertainment news aside, I didn't realize how much of a reporter you were before you had even gotten to entertainment tonight because why I was a kid, you know? Yeah, that was the thing with Entertainment Tonight um, is that, I, I, you know, when I, I was at CBS News uh, for like seven, eight years, um, and I got there, like I was 23 years old. So I was like, what, what am I doing here? You know, I, and I was in, in that newsroom was John Stossel and Meredith Vieira, and then oh, Brian Williams came in, and I left, and uh, and uh, Bill O'Reilly replaced me, and then he went on to, to 60 Minutes. It was a real serious, I mean, it was the flagship uh, local station for, for CB, the CBS network, Cronkite and Dan Rather were, were there right next door, you know? And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, they were, they had groomed me in Nashville to be a, a newsman. I mean, all along I was, you know, I was still playing jazz piano in small clubs, but, but that was my, my real gig. And so uh, in 1977, the world was falling apart in New York city. It was, they were on the verge of bankruptcy and in that year, uh, it was, yes, yeah, it was the 44 caliber killer. People would know him better as Son of Sam was, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, at the same time, Connie Selica, who I did not know, was was a, a model in, in New York City. And she was, she had long, dark hair, you know, and that was one of the, uh, that was the, the, um, the, um, uh, the victims that he was going after were, you know, pretty women and long and long. Dark yeah. hair. So she was freaked out of her mind as I, as I talked to her later, but same year studio 54 uh, opened up and that was crazy. So it was all this stuff going on and there was, there was, it was just fires and, and, and murders. And it was just a, New York was a crazy, sort of like that now, New York was yeah, a I crazy, mean, I mean, yeah. right. New York was a crazy, crazy place. Uh, and, and then I got a call from, this is in the book, but I got a call from Terry O'Neill, who was one of the executive producers at CBS Sports. And he said, hey, would you be interested in coming over to network sports? And that was the thing back then. You were like, the big the big move you could make was net, was local to network. And um, and so I said, Terry, I, I, I uh, thank you for the call, but I think you may have the wrong guy. Uh, and he goes, well, why is that? I said, I can't name three NBA teams. And I definitely can't name one baseball team except the Mets. And he goes, oh, no, no, see, the, 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 the events we would have in mind for you, nobody knows anything about them anyway. So it doesn't matter that, that you don't know baseball or don't know the rules of football or whatever. And so he was right. I, I took the, I said, what the heck, I'll take the job. And this was this is sort of like my life. What the heck, I'll take the job. So I took the job and within minutes, I was, uh, or days, I was in Europe covering the Tour de France bike race, you know, downhill skiing. Uh, figure skating, you know, all the Olympic sports. And, and I was also using my music at the same time. But after about, and that was really transformative for me. Uh, but after about six years of that, I got a call from the guys at Paramount Television who produce Entertainment Tonight. And they said, we found an old tape of yours anchoring the news in Nashville. We're looking for a newsier approach to Entertainment Tonight. And we'd like for you to come audition. And I said, well, what's entertainment tonight? I had been living in Europe. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. And, and they laughed at me. They said, well, it's the Mary Hart show. I said, Okay, great. Uh, what's that? You know, and so I came back into the States and I did an audition. And, and you tanked it. You said you kind of didn't do was, good in your first yeah, audition. I showed up. Yes, Ryan. I showed up like in cut off jeans and uh, my hair was all a mess. And I gained some weight uh, with, the, you know, the French food and everything. And I hadn't really been on camera that much. It was a lot of like an announcing 
you know, like sports announcer, you weren't on, you're not on camera that much. And, I, and a lot of music and stuff like that. I looked very different than my audition tape in, in Nashville. And, and, and they had, they, Mary Hart was there and her Mary Hart regalia stuff, you know, it's her you know, shoulder pads and all this other stuff. And, <laughs> and so, and she's, uh, we're sitting next to each other and she looked at me like, oh my gosh, what, the, who just dug this thing up, you know? And um, it was, it, you know, it was sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it, it was like uh, uh, the most gorgeous actors you can imagine and like a bad version of Nick Nolte or something, you know? <laughs> And so, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in there and from the movie, The Fighter, I think maybe. Uh, so the prompter's there and he said, okay, John, just read the prompter and, and the detailed version of this is in the book. Uh, just read the prompter and then Mary, you sort of marry then Mary asks some questions. And so I'm still doing sports. Yeah, I'm still doing downhill skiing. You know? He's off the course. He's on the course. Oh, Bill Johnson has a chance at the golf. You know, and Tom so, Cruise is doing a movie. <laughs> exactly. Celebrating a birthday today, Phil Collins. <laughs> and, and that's the way I did. I read, I read the, the, I read the stuff that way. And, uh, and, and Mary in the middle of it, Mary goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. Too, too loud. And to this day, Connie, uh, with me and my son, both is like a dinner party. She's like, no, whoa, 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 too loud. And so, yeah. And so she asked me a few questions and the producer's like, uh, thanks. That's great. <laughs> you know, so I didn't hear anything from them. Do you get I nervous didn't... in those situations or are you just kind of oblivious, you know, like, Oh, I'm just doing what I, I mean, do you, do you think about things and get yourself all worked up and nerve? I mean, I tend to do that myself. Is, is that something, or are you always just kind of throw yourself head first into things? No, I'm terrible in an audition. I'm really terrible. I, the reason, the reason I was, I was so bad in this one though, was that I just didn't care. I would, I would, I, I, I had watched entertainment tonight. And I was like, this is, ah, this is not me. I'm a hard news guy. I'm doing, you know, Olympic sports and, and so uh, I, I just, I, I showed up, you know, I, I, I phoned it in, I, I, I booted it. But yes, I'm terrible in auditions. I, I, I just like you said, I, I overthink it. I, I hate even auditioning musicians for our band because I just, I'm so empathetic for them. But what happened at the same time, and you know this from reading the book, was that right about that time, the, the president of CBS Sports changed and they wanted, to, uh, they wanted to change the whole approach of, of what CBS was covering. They wanted to get back to the traditional sports and out of, you know, tractor pulling, which I was doing. And <laughs> so they, uh, uh, he said, you know, I'm probably not going to renew your contract. So here I am I, in, in, in six, eight months, I'm going to be out of a job. All of a sudden, I'm calling entertainment tonight and saying, hey, have you made a decision yet? You know, and uh, Frank Kelly, who was running the show there at Paramount TV, said, you know, it's funny you should call. We've we got it down to two or three people. Would you fly out here and do another audition? Now, now I was desperate again. Yeah, you went to the gym. To, you were studying tapes. You did the I whole went thing. to the gym. I Betamaxed, if anybody knows what I'm talking Betamax. about. I Betamaxed uh, all of the entertainment tonight. I would listen to Rob Weller, who was the host there. I transcribed the scripts. I was reading. I had. A, I was pretending my bathroom mirror was a teleprompter. Uh, I was. I, I was running around Central Park, repeating the celebrity birthdays. I mean, it was. <laughs> You know, it's like, and rock, it like Rocky, but with uh, entertainment news. It was, it was like, yeah, that's very good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It was like a really irritating, ridiculous Rocky, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, and so I got there and I thought, I need some color. I, yeah, because I hadn't been to Los Angeles in a very long time since my parents took me to Disneyland. And I said, I said, they put me up in the Westwood marquee. They had a pool on top of the hotel. I said, I need some color in my face. So I went up there. <laughs> And I laid down, you know, and I practiced my lines and stuff. And it didn't occur to me that the sun was a little different in L.A. than it was <laughs> on Long Island. And I burned myself really badly. And I showed up for the I, I looked like 
what, what's the thing that uh, Paul Giamatti did where he where he turned blue because he put his hand in the toilet or something? I can't remember what it was. Anyway, oh, I yeah. pill or something. Anyway, I was completely red. And so they make up artists like, uh, oh, you know, they all have a British accent. Like, oh, what do we do with this? What is this? Why did you send me this? I can't do anything with this. And this was me, you know, I'm like, okay. So anyway, they covered me with pancake. And I sat down there and I did the audition with Mary and I was nervous. Was Mary and, like, who is this all of a sudden no she didn't recognize me almost because i had the makeup on i didn't have i had a suit on and uh and i lost like 20 pounds and so and there were three people auditioning and she's like oh i remember you <laughs> thanks you know it's, I, I i had made over myself you know well, I, I still stay in touch with Mary. We talk about this. If you're a wine lover like me, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I found the most personalized wine club that has amazing wines and exclusive perks. It's called First Leaf. As a First Leaf member, I get to discover new wines I'm guaranteed to enjoy. That's because First Leaf gets to know your unique preferences. To start, all you have to do is answer a few quick questions on their website about what flavors that I like, how often I drink wine, and if I prefer red wine white or rosé or a combination. Now, based on my answers, First Leaf curated an amazing selection of wines just for me. And when I rate those wines, my wine selection gets even more tailored. You guys, I have to tell you, I got a free shipment with them, but I kept my membership going because I liked it so much. I swear to God, I got this great Sangiovese. I got a Malbec. Uh, I did get a rosé as well because I have a combination and I am loving it. Best of all, I get to choose when I want my box delivered and how often I get new assortments of wine. Being part of the First Leaf Wine Club also has its perks. As a member, I get access to their incredibly helpful wine concierge. Plus, I get member-exclusive pricing on every order, so you can continue to order the ones that you love. So, join the club today with me and discover new wines you'll love with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash so good to get your first box. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash so good. Tryfirstleaf.com slash so good. Elevating my style used to mean breaking the bank, but with Quince, I get high-end, versatile pieces at prices I can actually afford. Now I can upgrade my style by snagging killer luxury essentials that sync with my vibe and my wallet. You guys know I've got a blue linen blazer. Now I have a black leather jacket and I have my eye on this Italian suede trucker jacket. I think that's going to be my next purchase. So Quince creates timeless essentials that never go out of style. You're going to have them in your closet forever. Quince has all the must-haves, like Mongolian cashmere crew neck sweaters from $50, iconic 100% leather jackets, and versatile flow-knit activewear. With all Quince items, everything is priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes that savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. How do you not love that? So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash so bad for free shipping and 365-day returns on your order. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash so bad to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash so bad i mean uh, she she she's an icon for what i mean like it really is uh i mean she was the the queen of inter entertainment news before this is before the internet you guys this is before this is where you got your entertainment tonight like it, I, this is where you got your entertainment to new news was entertainment tonight that was the main place yeah it was it was right and, I, and i'll tell you um 
you know those movies where somebody their their memory gets i mean their their identity gets erased you know where we're all of a sudden they become a different person or they put them in yeah. the, they they put them in that uh how halfway house whatever that thing is called they give them a new identity yeah so so i got the gig right they gave me a third they said well i can offer you a 13-week contract i was used to three-year contracts and so they said, well, we'll we'll sign a 13-year contract with you for half the money i was making at cbs sports and i'm like okay what am i going to do i'm going to go back to news uh going back in the tent so i took the deal and what didn't occur to me because i didn't really follow the nielsen ratings was that 23 million people back there in 1986, 23 million people a night watched entertainment yep. for that half hour. That was like, I mean, today that's Super Bowl numbers yeah. almost. Well, no, every everything's so segmented. This is before, yes. and even yeah. before Access Hollywood, you guys were the first. Yeah. Everybody yeah. watched that show. Yeah, and there was no like, like you said, there was no internet, and you know none of that. There was barely a cell phone. I mean, you had a, to get a cell phone. You had a briefcase. It was like calling in a, a a drone strike or something, you know, with a giant thing carried around with you. Uh, and so within five days, I would walk into a restaurant. People were like, oh, hi, I, I just I just saw you here. I have this table right here. You know, I was like, what? The, what is this? I mean, I've been on sports, you know, news. People knew who I was in New York City alone. But all of a sudden, you know, and then it was like my there was no Wikipedia or anything. That's the person I was. I was the host of Entertainment Tonight. Nobody knew anything about about uh, my music certainly but nobody knew anything about uh, about me being a broadcaster nobody knew anything about me you know being on the tour de france bike race or covering downhill skiing or figure skating and everything i was the guy in entertainment tonight which made sense right and so um i got through the first 13 weeks and they renewed me again and then it kept going and but i want to tell you something i was when I was young, when I was in, in news and sport, I was a pretty gritty guy. I, well, you did not want to get in my way uh, because I was, first of all, I was a big guy. I had gotten big, you know, after I was playing lacrosse at state. And, um, and I just, uh, all of a sudden, the guy who was like, had a microphone in, in, in front of, you know, who knows, you know, Ed Koch or AB in New York shouting questions at him, you know, here I was doing, you know, what are the top three reasons that that Bruce Springsteen <laughs> wants to wants to kiss his? Um, I don't know. You know, uh, yeah. one of his background singers. I, you know, it's ridiculous stuff. You yeah. know, and, I, and so I didn't take it real seriously. So I was sort of an iconoclast, and I was a little, I, I was a little, uh, I don't know, pesky, rough on Mary Hart. And she, I found out later, she should have got, she, she could have and should have gotten me fired in a minute. And we laughed about it. Uh, we were talking about my cancer journey a year back uh, on on the show on Entertainment Tonight, and and she said, "Yeah, you were a jerk." She said, "You were a jerk." She said, well, "But you I had to go to a body language expert, even didn't you?" And you did read the book, yeah. Um, I mean, like about, you got—that's wild. Yeah, after about a year, the guys at Paramount listen. They had they spent millions producing this show, and they were making millions on it. Let me just give you an idea, real quickly, and you you and you know this is that back in the day, the only way for you to see a, there was no MTV, you know, there was no YouTube, and there was no, none of those other channels or anything. There was no, no, no cable TV, really. The only way for you to see a movie trailer was either, either in the movie studio or on Entertainment Tonight. Yep. So you had every movie studio begging to get their stuff, you know, on there. And so it was, a, you know, it, it was a big show. It was a big franchise for Paramount Television. And so when they saw this guy who had come in that they had hired messing with their franchise, Lucy Salhaney, who hired me, she she comes comes to me and she says, we need to send you to body language school. And I said, what? 
Yeah, you're you're being mean to our 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 co-host, right? To our <laughs> you're being mean to her. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, yeah, you are. And you're going to go to this uh, for a weekend in Dallas with a body language uh, expert that we've hired for you. We've already made, got your plane ticket. And everything. Like, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Well, you got a choice. You either do that or it's your last day. And so I went and I did that. When I arrived at this body language expert, she had hours of VHS tapes of me on entertainment tonight edited <laughs> where I would finish a story and then I would turn to Mary and go, Mary? And, or Mary would say something and she'd say, wow, they, they look like they're friends off screen as well. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, and I go on to the next story, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I was an, I'm an a-hole, you know? So she, for like two, two and a half, three days, this, this woman, this psychologist, like psychotherapist, she pretended, she had all the scripts too. Lucy had sent her all these scripts. She pretended to be Mary and I pretended to be me. And, and they, and they just, she practiced the meanness out of me, you know, and, and when my wife heard this story later, and years later, she's like, yeah, I know that person. I know that person that you could be. You know, uh-huh. and, and so I came back and I was a, you know, I was a good host. You know, I, hey, I, Mary, <laughs> welcome back to Mary. Yeah. Well, I love what, I mean, I was thinking, reading your book, I was thinking about my own life and, and you were, you know, just how things go from place to place and you couldn't predict your journey from a pup tent to entertainment tonight. Um, but even talking about, uh, you know, you didn't know sports, you end up doing tour de France coverage and all of this stuff, but then a lot of people don't even know you wrote the NBA on NBC basketball theme round ball rock, which is an iconic, you guys, you might not know it from the title, but if you heard it, you know, that is, I mean, that is, I even am not into sports. And I knew that the minute I heard it, I was like, it's so fascinating. And then not even, you know, appreciating potentially entertainment to news at the time, but then you go on or you're already doing music, but you have this kind of huge career, this almost second career that is even more successful than entertainment tonight about being this composer, this musician. I mean, it is just funny how the world works and presents these opportunities that lead to something so much bigger. And I kind of wanted to talk about your, your composing and your music, just because you said you were like, you've always been doing that, right? That, that was something you were always doing, even playing small jazz clubs as you were a reporter. Is that correct? It is Ryan. And I, and you really, you said it really well just then. I, I think that I think you have to look at, at, at my life, let's, let's, since we're doing that, through through the lens of what what made these things happen. So a um, good and bad. So so a I was I was the youngest in the family. All right, so I didn't get I I was the, I was the only boy, but my parents were exhausted and I didn't get as you know as much attention. So I was I, I was left alone a lot. I was in a, a high school that today you would call a high school of performing arts. It was Garden City High School. And everybody there was, I mean, first of all, the Beatles and Dave Clark Five and, and the Doors and all they had, had emerged. And so everybody wanted to be in a, in a garage band. In fact, everybody was in a garage band. Everybody wanted to be on stage doing something, very much like today with YouTube. But back then it was, there wasn't any of that, but, but people really wanted to step out. And, and then the, the third part of it, is that I was just, I had to find, I, I couldn't find myself on the, on the football team. I wasn't going to be the captain of anything. I had very average grades. And I, and I think that subconsciously, I was just looking for a trophy to bring my dad. And, and that, when you look through that lens, it's sort of easy to understand that, that I, had to, I had to try and find something. And even when I was, even when I was a, I mean, a classically trained pianist at the age of 12, I would go to these recitals and 
uh, we, you know, my dad would be forced to go and we'd walk out and my dad and the ride home in his Thunderbird, my dad would say, you know, you know, you should try that again without any mistakes. And I, I know that sounds like hyperbole, but that's, you know, that, that was where, that was the greatest generation They were tough on you, you know? And so, um, I, I, I think that, that if, if, if you, if you, if you, if anybody were asking, you know, what, what's your, what's it, what's your advice for coming up with these things or whatever it's, it's risk. I don't, I'm not sure people take risks anymore like that. You know, we're, we're all, we're all so busy preparing for what we're going to do that we're just like, well, I, you know, I'll turn it in when I'm ready or, or nobody's going to like this. And we, and we just outthink ourselves. And, and, and back in those days, I just didn't have a choice. So for example, you know, why, when, when I went to do the Tour de France bike race, they didn't hire me. They hired me as an announcer. David Michaels, the producer, and Terry O'Neill. And so when I said, hey, they'd say, we want to do this documentary style, like an MTV you know, thing. And, and so we're looking for music. Do you have any ideas? I said, well, I, I can probably write this music. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, let me show you. So I, told, I, I had all these, you know, it's like 1980s, right? So I had all these synthesizers in my studio. I brought them over there and I showed them all this stuff and everything sounded like Tangerine Dream, you know? And they said, yeah, great, <laughs> but we can't pay you for this, right? So if, if you go into a situation and say, well, I'm not doing it without getting paid. So I just did all this music for free. I mean, two hours of music a week during the Tour de France. And then I owned it all, right? But but it is sort of like, you know, don't just, you have to just turn something in is, is really what I was doing. And I was doing it because I was desperate for some sort of attention. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, I mean, but I, I love that. That actually is kind of my own journey, even with this, this show was that I, I did all of this for free before I heart acquired it. But it was like, this was, I was doing it out of this kind of passion of this. Like, I really, this is something that I had a voice in and you just work. Like it was, this is the hardest I've ever worked in my life. And it has also been the most fruitful, but you're right. A lot of people don't take risks because it's scary and it hurts and all of the, I mean, it, it is, it, I was talking about this last week that it, it sometimes stinks that everything that is beneficial to you in your life is one of the hard things is like even just working out or hiking a hill. It's like, ah, but then after you do it, it is some of the most rewarding things that you will ever have in your life. And that seems like a lot of your career has been that. Yeah, I, I think, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, um, uh, I mean, I mean, here, here, here's an example. So my son, Gib, who just turned 40, you know, uh, I, I, he's, he's my, technically he's my stepson, but has been my son since he, he was nine years old. So he's lived in a house with with uh, a, a, and now my daughter is a you know is a is a dancer and and studied you know ballet and modern dance in in college and so there's there's just a lot of that stuff in the in the house and and, and so Gib my son you know, grew up as a as as an actor and also you know as a theater geek and and singer and all the rest of that stuff and um, but uh, there was. I remember there was one. This is actually a good idea, a good, a good example. There was one day where he came over to the house and I'm working on something on the radio show. And all of a sudden I hear the song um, Hallelujah, you know, coming out of uh, his childhood uh, bedroom. Right. And I played it in ukulele and uh, and I'm, I walk by and I go, Gib, what are you doing? And he goes, I said, how did you, you know, it, it, that's you playing that? He goes, he goes, yeah. And I said, how did you learn how to play the ukulele? He said, I learned on YouTube. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I ordered it on Amazon. I learned on YouTube. And, and, um, and I, learned, I learned this song. I, you know, I downloaded the, uh, this, the music of the song. And I said, well, it's in the show this weekend. And he goes, what? And I said, it's in, it's in the concert. Because he was always opening our concerts with, with, uh, with comedy, right? And then he, yeah. would just, he would just leave and I would do the show. I said, you're playing it this weekend. He goes, no, I'm not. I said, yeah, you are. 
that's it. I've already put it in, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, that's, that's really sort of how I've lived, even with other people, how I've lived my, you know, my life, which is come, come on, let's do it. Right. You know, and what, no, we need to rehearse for a week. Okay. Um, you got five, you got, you got like three days, let's go, you know? And, and I, I think it's, it really is a damn the torpedoes full speed ahead approach. I, I'm not a big guy jumping out of airplanes or, or, you know, or crazy stuff, you know, bucket list stuff, but, but seeing opportunities that, that, that line up with, with what you're passionate about is you just, you really have to just sort of turn it in. Well, the best example of that, I think is your, uh, and this is with your wife as well, that, that, that helped through this whole process. It was your, your live at Red Rocks special. I mean, that was, I mean, what possessed you to even do that? You said you were selling a bunch of tapes potentially out of, out of like a, a magazine or something. And then all of a sudden you, there's this idea to produce a live special at Red Rock and you throw all of this money in it. I mean, like, and, and it's really this kind of amazing story of, of persistence and stuff, but like what possessed you at the time that like, I can do this. Um, it was, I'm a big fan of decoding greatness. And so uh, there's this book that I read like maybe about a year ago. And when I, when I read the book, I was like, that's, that's for some reason, that's how I've lived my life since I was a kid. Uh, since I checked out a book in junior high school, which, which was the biography of Houdini, where uh, you, if you don't really have a strong personality, if you don't really have a vision for what you do, but you have, but you think it's in there somewhere, the book is called um, uh, Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. And it's like, wow, why would I want to do that? You know, steal other people's stuff. But it, basically what it is, is you look at, you look at people who are doing what you want to do and who are successful and you study them and you, you, you don't just study how they change chords or how they write the book or, or how they, or how they are in a comedy club or whatever, but you, 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 you look at that and then you figure out what is try to decode the process of how they got there. And then you just call them on the phone. I mean, just try to get to them and say, can I just have 15 minutes of your time? I'm your biggest fan, you know? And, and so when, for for Red Rocks, I, I got turned down because I was so recognizable on Entertainment Tonight. I could not get a record deal, even though I had I, I released all this music on my own with cassettes, as you mentioned, of the Tour de France and other sporting events uh, in mail order, right? Uh, and I showed those numbers to the to these guys in these meetings at Arista Records in Columbia and Polygram and Warner Brothers and all that. They turned me down. I mean, they took the meeting because I was the host of Entertainment Tonight, who was playing all of their uh, you know, the, the promos for their artists, but uh, they didn't want the guy who was reading the celebrity birthdays on their label, ostensibly. So uh, I, I have to find a way to I have to find a way to expose my music. What am I going to do? And then I was watching TV and by accident, I landed on PBS and I saw uh, U2's Under a Blood Red Sky at, at Red Rocks in the fog. And I was like, what is that? Where is that place? I love this. And then later in the pledge drive, I saw the Moody Blues and they were at Red Rocks. <laughs> and then a week later, I saw Yanni live at the Acropolis. And then the same night, I saw the three tenors on PBS. And I watched them uh, on PBS as they were holding up the albums and hawking the albums to raise money for PBS. You know, this is 1993. And it was one of those things where it's like, that's what I'm going to do. Because 
Yanni didn't really have a record deal. He had a tiny label deal. Uh, Three Tenors didn't even exist. Riverdance, what the heck is that, right? And so, but these things were blowing up and they were at the top of the charts. I went to PBS and said, I have an idea. John Tesh live with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. And I'll have like Olympic uh, champion uh, Nadia Comaneci and Bart Connor uh, performing in the middle of Red Rocks and all the rest of this stuff. And they said, one of the people on the conference call said, what, what are you going to do? Read the celebrity birthdays with the orchestra? And I was like, okay, so now I know what this is about. And they said, we, if you make it, we'll look at it and we may even test it, but we can't put up any money for it. And so that's what, when I went back to Connie, my wife and said, here's the, here's the thing. And she said, I believe in you, let's do what it takes. And so we basically took, you know, savings um, and, you know, risked our house basically to invest in, in this thing. And we did, we, we produced it ourselves. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition show between women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Unsurprisingly, it all led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. And it paid off. I mean, that's what I, I like. Sometimes when you risk in yourself and you believe in yourself and you have other people that believe in you for that to pay off. I mean, that is I mean, you definitely have the talent. But as we both know, you know, talent sometimes, you know, so many things have to line up. You have to work so hard for just a little modicum of success. And this thing blew up. I, rem I mean, like this, you know, this created a whole, I mean, you had always been doing this, but this put you on the national stage doing what you love to do. All of a sudden you were up there with Yanni. All of a sudden you were up there with these musicians. I mean, did it blow you away all of a sudden that you're like, not only am I now known for entertainment tonight, I'm known for music. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the middle of this is in the book too, you know, and, in the, and we talk about it on stage in the middle of the concert, well, four songs into the Rainy. concert. It, I mean, it was, it poured, it was raining sideways and the orchestra left and I was, I said, well, that's where, you know, we're done. We just lost a million dollars. And, uh, and so the, you know, I'm looking around and, and the band, my band guys weren't leaving because they didn't have instruments that would be destroyed. Like, like violins would have been, uh, but the 80 piece orchestra left and, and the, the audience really, the Red Rocks audience was the one that, uh, that saved the day because they just, they were so used to rain. I didn't even know this. They were so used to rain that they my first clue should have been that it was it was five hundred thousand dollars to buy rain insurance <laughs> which i didn't buy but uh but the crowd they just started putting on slickers and put their umbrellas up and stomping their feet that we had to keep playing so we did we just played in the rain realizing that you know we, we probably didn't have anything and then the orchestra came back when the when the rain stopped and the sun and the moon came back out but uh, it turned out they had all of that footage of us playing in the rain. And, and long story short, that one segment of us battling against the rain, the water coming out of the piano was, was one of the, the most popular segments of, uh, of the show on PBS. But, but when you say what happened in an instant, it did. 
when we edited the show and and turned it in to uh, to PBS, um, they, they did, didn't get back to me. But I sent it. I sent a copy to uh, I'll never, never forget her name, Linda Taggart, who was the head of Maryland Public Television. And I said, "This is my life's dream. Would you please?" I sent her a, a three quarter inch tape. Would you please take a chance on on this? Test it. Do whatever you got to do. You're my only hope. That kind of thing. And then I called her up. I didn't get her. I left her a message. And uh, on Monday, my phone rang and this woman was laughing hysterically and so excited. And she basically said, John, it's a hit. And I said, who is this? And she said, this is Linda Taggart. You left me a message. And I said, oh, yes. Hi, I'm this Taggart. And she said, listen, I put it in after the three tenors. I put your show in after the three tenors on three quarter inch tape. And she said, people went nuts. And she said, I'm going to call everybody at PBS and, and tell them this thing is a hit. Do you have a do you have a, a, a tour that we can sell tickets for? And I said, no, I don't have a tour. And she said, well, you better put one together right away. And <laughs> that, then my phone just did, didn't stop ringing. Everybody called me from, you know, Washington, D.C., WNET and, you know, in New York, uh, KOCE in Los Angeles. And and it had it had tested better than the three tenors on that one evening. And we went ultimately we went from selling. 500 records a month of my mail order records to 50,000. And and we didn't have a record company. So we just manufactured it ourselves and shipped to independent record companies and all the rest of the stuff. But yeah, I do not recommend this kind of risk. (laughs) I don't recommend it. Uh, Mr. Tesh, I just put my house up. uh, I lost it all. Ryan, I do not recommend it. (laughs) Um, uh, Do you have 10 more minutes? I know I've taken up so much of your time. Oh, it's great. I I ran ran my mouth. You have such a big life and it's just, um, I I did want to talk a little bit about, you, you know, you spoke about that experience and it's hard not to then believe in some sort of higher power or some sort of, you know, and, and you speak about in the book that your wife, um, you know, she had always been, uh, or she was religious and she got you introduced to her church and her faith. And especially during your battle with cancer, you know, what has your faith meant to you and how has it changed over the years? Because I assume, you know, even going through a battle like with cancer, it's got to test that faith. Yeah, for sure, Ryan. And I, and and I, you know, it's, of course, it's a, it's a long story, but, but, but suffice to say that uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in the Methodist church and, and, uh, and I like a lot of the different denominations, there was a fair amount of dogma involved. And that, I think that's what people today started, started resisting where it's like, you know, can I, can I have a direct relationship with God, with Jesus Christ? Do I really need to go to this church? Well, for fellowship, it's a good idea. But that was when I learned to pray, you know. So when I got into, went to NC State, and this happens to a lot of people who go to college, I didn't go to church anymore, but I was still left with, with the understanding of the power of prayer. And so, yes, when you're in a, it, it's, it's like, you know, when, when, when servicemen and women say there are no atheists in foxholes, um, there are no atheists in pub tents either, you know. And so I, when, you're, when you're going to sleep at, 6 30 7 o'clock at night because the sun went down you don't have any light you can you have so you have time before you go to sleep to spend some time some quality time with god and 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 you and you figure out it's not it's a it's not like a monty python prayer oh lord you are so huge you're awfully awfully big and if you don't mind you know you start to have conversations with god and, and 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 things are revealed to you you know in this in the silence of those of those moments so that's always been my friend but when I, uh, that, you know, that, 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 that ritual, but when we, when in 2015, when I was diagnosed with, with, 
basically terminal cancer, you get your affairs in order, you probably have 18 months to live. And, you know, Connie and I got that message together. We, we, we stumbled upon a, a, a different, what's, and actually the book is called this, A Different Way to Pray. And it was, it was the basic understanding that, that God doesn't put sickness on anybody, the other guy does, uh, that God wants you well, that the, that the promise in the word of God is, is, is life and healing and even and even prosperity for those who you know for those who believe and so we got into groups that believe just like that and and prayed prayers like Mark 11:23 how to speak to your mountain we understood Proverbs 18:21 life and death are in the power of the tongue that one if you just meditate on that one scripture alone in fact everybody from Oprah to uh Tony Robbins you know they they use some form of of that proverb because you're you can and, and, and certainly weaponized by prayer, you can speak your future into existence. And so I, I've used that throughout my life and throughout my battle with, uh, with, with, with cancer, understanding that the true nature of God is, is, is health and wellness and, and understanding that God, God wants you to, to succeed and that you need to be very careful about what comes out of your mouth. Yeah, if God is for you, who can be against us? Yeah, there you go. Against you. Uh, I, I mean, but that is interesting because, you know, we always talk about gremlins or I call the bad thoughts in your head, you know, the the things that are like speaking out against you and, and stuff like that. But uh, I love what you just said is that you got to be careful what you speak into existence. And I imagine when you're going through something like that, that is doubly hard not to let those gremlins get a hold of you, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, let's speak of the gremlin who happens to be, you know, Satan. <laughs> is it Satan? Both, uh, Dana Carvey, yeah. Dana Carvey, yeah, on Saturday Night Live, the church lady. Um, yeah, it's well, here's the here's the here's how you get rid of the gremlins is what Paul said in the book of Romans, which is be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, that's so deep, you know, which which just means you really have to understand how to capture every, and that's Second Corinthians ten five, capture every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, capture those gremlins, transform your mind, and replace it with thoughts of of of, of health and wellness and a, and and a future, and and have expectation. That's you know that's that's what's followed me my whole life. Is I expected to be angry. I could see myself angry in the news at WCBS when I was in that tent. I could. I could see myself on the next radio show. I could see myself on stage when I was on the stairmaster training for the Red Rock show, which was at you know seven thousand feet of altitude. I could see myself. I could see my hands playing every single song. You know, I was. I, I practiced that. I, I transformed my mind into being being able to teleport myself into into these new situations. I could see myself calling Bill Johnson's winning gold medal race down the Wasserstation in Wengen in, in, in Switzerland. You know, I did this all day and all night because and it, and it became, the process became a ritual, which became a habit of mine. And I use it to this day. I mean, just amazing. I, I couldn't, I found, I mean, I was so uh, blessed to actually find your book. I couldn't have found it at a better time. And it really is this great story of your life, but also so many inspirational passages. And you have the word grit in your title. What is grit to you? Well, it's what it's what my parents would have called in 1950s stick to you know. <clears throat> and if you really want to see the science and the data behind grit, uh, these are the kinds of books I read, Ryan. I'm sorry, but no, uh, this is a- awesome. Angela Duckworth uh, wrote a book called Grit. That's it, and she's a you know she's a Harvard researcher. Angela Duckworth. It's called it's called Grit, and it's 
you know, there's also a book by Brene Brown. I'm not a huge fan yeah, of some yeah, of her other yeah. writings, but but Brene Brene wrote uh, a thing called the um, the Gift of Imperfection, and it, it's it, it can be summarized by just the people who ha- are born with imperfections. I mean, there are many stories of Hollywood producers and writers who have um, um, oh gosh, what is it called? I can't remember. It's uh, oh dyslexia. Who have dyslexia? Who figured out? Uh, figured out um, uh, strategies to get past that and learn how to, you know, write with that. My, you know, my my imperfection was I, I had I actually had stage fright uh, as a kid. I was scrawny and unpopular, you know. But those kinds of things, it there's lots of data that shows that the, the, the you know the the head cheerleader and the and the, the you know the captain of the football team, the most popular kids in school, whatever, they have different challenges and harder a harder road than those of us who were in the back of the bus, you know? And, and so uh, their grit for me is, it's a combination of, of decoding greatness, of, of understanding what the goal is, where the finish line is. And then I just, it, when, when I'm not talking to you, I have in my ear, Jocko Willink and uh, David Goggins. These are these are Navy SEALs who make YouTube videos. Admiral McRaven, who who trained the Navy SEALs. These guys are always. If you just search Motivation Hub, you'll find that. And that's why you know I've been working for the last two years on this on this streaming service called the Warrior Mindset. And and this thing is going to be amazing. I mean, it's already built and everything. I'm just creating more content for it. You spend three minutes on this side, listening to the stream, the live stream of the warrior mindset, and you will be right off of your couch and doing whatever you were meant to be done. I mean, that is so needed right now. I feel, you know, I feel like we are just looking for somebody to help us kind of live our best lives a lot of the time. And that's just fascinating. So that's up next for you. And you were just talking before we started, uh, did you just, uh, do more live music? You were just talking about having to travel down a bunch of stairs. Like we have more, do we have more music coming out? What, what do we have to look forward to besides the warrior mindset? Yeah, there's a, there, there, there's a new video called, uh, John, live music inspiration and healing and we 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 did a you know an hour and a half program from a cabin in the woods and <laughs> uh and it's it's live music it's it's me talking about a lot of stuff you and i talked about it's that my friends raquel and herman hudson who, who are these evangelists who who just preach on healing his his wife herman's wife raquel was was healed of like three major horrible diseases and we've known them for years um, and so, yeah, that'll be on the warrior, on, on the warrior mindset. I'll let you, I'll let you know when that's, that's all ready to go, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's my day is mostly spent in my head, you know, never stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Well, let me look at my phone. Cause my phone has a, um, it has a, a, a screenshot on it and it says, what, is, what does it say? It says create outwork, never stop. And, and so every time I look at my phone, that's what it says, create outwork never stop. And who is it that says this? Who, who says this? It's, it's the rock, right? Yeah. Who was picked, picked, picked off a, a you know, pro football team, whatever. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life. The rock, what does he say? You, you guys, you, you MFers will never outwork me. You'll never outwork me. Do whatever you want, but you'll never outwork me. You know? And that's, that's also a speech that, um, uh, there's, there's a couple of actors that did, or Matthew McConaughey, same, same, same type. Yeah. Of 
Well, actually, his book was actually interesting. Green Lights had some really good inspirational passages in it, Matthew McConaughey. But anyways, um, Mr. Tesh, the, John Tesh, this has been amazing. I cannot tell you how big of a fan I am of yours. You have been a hero. You you are the reason why I I wanted to do any of this is, is because of you. So the fact that I got to spend so much time and you were so generous with your time to my audience, I just really appreciate it. And I, I hope you know how much you mean to so much of us out here. And uh, your book is just amazing. And I cannot wait to uh, check out the Warrior Mindset. I can't wait to listen to your new music. But thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you are. I just really appreciate you. Brian, you're, you're, you're very kind. I appreciate it. And this has been great therapy for me. You know, as I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm answering your questions and I'm going, you know, what have I done today? Pretty much nothing. I'm just talking to Ryan. You know, I, I, I need to stop. I need to stop talking. I mean, I like Ryan a lot, but, but what have <laughs> that's, I? That's your you new know, lock I'll, screen. Don't I'll talk to something. Ryan. I'll tell you, don't talk right, to right. I'll tell you something funny. Where uh, I have a little studio, a little little TV studio in my uh, in my radio studio, and so behind me on a 1984 Hammond organ, behind me are four are four Emmys, right? And so when people you know, but people see me, they see sort of out of focus, these four Emmys back there. And, and, you know, and some, sometimes people will say, oh yeah, you got to show us your Emmys, huh? You know, why, you know, why, why do you put those there? And I said, because every time I look at that, I'm like, Oh gosh, I haven't done anything today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I I have done something huge today, and that was speaking to you. So uh, thank you so much, uh, and and hopefully we'll get a chance to cross paths later in life because uh, I really it was just great talking to you. You're a great man, Ryan. Thank you very much for your time. Betches.